start. So, uh, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Jeff Havisto, one of the pastors uh, here this morning. Actually, I'm here. I'm a pastor every morning, but this morning I'm preaching, and my name is Jeff Havisto. So, um, our text this morning is found in Colossians, and the passage is chapter three, verse sixteen. So once again, it's Colossians 3, verse 16. It says this. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. This scripture says that we should let the word of Christ dwell in you Richly, or it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And it says, teach and admonish one another. So my question to you this morning is, does the word of Christ dwell in you richly? And do you teach and admonish one another? And that's what we're going to look at this morning, those things. The word of Christ dwelling in us and teaching and admonishing one another. So let me pray before we begin. Father God, we come before you now, and we just ask that you'll be with us this morning. We ask for your spirit, Lord, to open our hearts to hear your word. Your word is power, and your word is life. And Lord, let us hear it this morning. Let us take it to heart, Lord. Let it change us. We ask this this morning in your name. Amen. So this morning we're going to spend a little bit of time in the book of Colossians. This book was written by the Apostle Paul. And the church is doing well, but it's under some attack. There's false teachers that are threatening to undermine everything that, that they have been taught so far. So Paul writes this letter. And in chapter 2 he kind of identifies the problem and what's happening. In chapter 3 he goes through and tells the Colossians what they should do. Um, we're not going to read all of chapter 2, but I do want to highlight some of the things that are going on in the church. So we've got four different passages for this. Um, we have overhead. So um, the first one is chapter 2, verse 8. It says this. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Verse 16 says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are the shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Verse 18, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you do still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all designed to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value 
in restraining sensual indulgence. See, the danger that the Apostle Paul points out is what he calls this hollow and deceptive philosophy. And this depends on human tradition. It depends on the basic principles of the earth rather than on Christ. This philosophy, this wisdom that he's talking about is not from God because it is not founded in Christ and it is not founded in his word. But it's founded on the principles of this world. It's found on human tradition. So when, when we talk about this being found on human tradition, it's just important to realize that tradition isn't wrong. Right? And even the Apostle Paul uses traditions in a positive sense in some of his writing, that these are good things. But, and history can show us that tradition is a good thing. But what he's talking about here is the tradition that's strictly human in origin. And it's disconnected from the divine truth. And so it's hollow. And it's deceptive. And so basically, this teaching that was going on in, 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 uh, for the Colossians represented man's attempt to arrive at the truth. It's, a, it was, it's this attempt to answer you know, the ultimate questions of life, but to answer it without Christ in there. So Paul says this is hollow. This is deceptive. And why does he say this? Because he looks around. And what does he see? He says he sees that these people are judging the Colossians by what they eat and drink. They're judging them by these religious festivals, these celebrations, these Sabbath days that they have. And Paul is saying, these are just a shadow of what's to come. It's just a shadow, and they're judging them by the shadow, but the reality is found in Christ. And it is, be, and it is by being connected with Christ that causes the body to grow. It causes the church to grow. It causes the persons to grow. And so any of these philosophies that loses the connection with Christ cannot grow. And these rules that they follow, they're all destined to perish because they're based on these human commands and these teachings. Yes, they have this appearance of wisdom, but they don't have any value in restraining anything. They have this self-imposed worship, this false humility, this harsh treatment of the body, but it doesn't draw them any closer to God. They don't love God with all their heart, strength, soul and might. They don't love their neighbors themselves because of it. Now, has much changed in the last 2,000 years? Really has much changed, right? Because we still try to answer these life's questions, right? And we still try to figure out all these problems, and we still try to do it without Christ, right? That's why we have so many self-help books. That's why we have so many of these YouTube videos on how we can fix ourselves, on how we can have this pain-free, worry-free, perfect life. And so we try the programs, and we try the diets, and we read the books, and these all have this appearance of wisdom. It seems like these things should work. They make sense to us, but they lack any value in restraining because they are disconnected from Christ. They are not connected with Christ. And so as we kind of unpack this this morning, I just want to ask these questions. What are the philosophies that you've been following? What is the teachings that you've been listening to? What traditions have you been clinging to? And ask yourself, does this counsel separate itself from Christ? So the Colossians looked at this and they needed to answer this question. Does this separate us from Christ? And so Paul directs them to the right wisdom. Paul directs them to what to look for and what to do. 
So when Paul does this, where does he begin? Where do you think Paul begins any of his writings from, if you're familiar with the books that Paul writes? He always starts with the gospel. He always begins looking to Christ. He always begins at that place because this is where we need to begin. And this is how we connect us to Christ. He says in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, If then, so chapter 2 kind of like presents this philosophy. Chapter 3 goes through and kind of tells us what to do. And so right away he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He begins with being raised with Christ. He begins with the gospel. Because it is Christ who saves us, right? Christ sustains us. It's Christ who brings us to heaven. And it is that wisdom from above that we need. See, the Colossians have been dwelling on the human traditions, the human wisdom, empty philosophies. And Paul tells them that the opposite, the opposite of this hollow and deceptive philosophy is the word of Christ. And so he tells them, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So we want to kind of unpack that. We want to ask, what is the word of Christ that he's, Paul is talking about? And how does it dwell in us richly? So first of all, the word, we're going to look at three different kind of definitions of what the word is. The first, the word is often referred to as Jesus Christ himself. We have an overhead. Revelations 19.13 says this. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Second, this also refers to the gospel. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And thirdly, as the Colossians would have looked at this, and they would have looked at this word of Christ, they would have looked at it as a message revealed to God through Christ. And this message was to be preached, to be ministered. This message was to be obeyed. If we look at uh, Matthew 7, this might be a familiar passage with you, but just look at this, because this is how the early church would have taken this word of Christ. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. See, the words of Christ is the house that's built on the rock. The philosophies that are built on human tradition are the house that is built on the sand. And they will not last. They are doomed to fall and to fail and to leave the hearer and the follower empty and deceived. And so Paul says, take this word of Christ and let it dwell in you fully. So what does that mean, to dwell in you fully? Um, I'm going to let a guy named Matthew Henry answer that. So Matthew Henry was a pastor lived in the late 1600s and the early 1700s. And i got three pictures to show you. Picture number one, this is uh, St. Augustine, if you can see that. And uh, so, see the picture of him? He's got his books out, he's thinking, he's scholarly, he just looks like a guy that, you know, should be there. Next one is John Calvin. Look at the picture of John Calvin right here. 
looks like he's looking upward, right? Looks like he's looking to heaven. He's got this connection with heaven. Now look at Matthew Henry. I love this picture. <laughs> looks like a guy. Looks like a deer cut in the headlights, doesn't he? <laughs> you ever feel like that? <laughs> I think I like this guy so much just through that one picture. Now, the other pictures look better. This is probably the most unflattering one of him, but I always just like this picture. So, but anyway, so Matthew Henry lives in the 1600s. He's going through Colossians. He's reading Colossians. He's meditating on it. He's thinking on it. He's trying to apply it to his life. And he says this, and uh, we do have an overhead for this too while I read this. Um, he says this. He says, the gospel is the word of Christ which has come to us, but that is not enough. It must dwell in us or keep house, and not as a servant in a family who is under another's control, but as a master who has the right to prescribe and to direct all under his roof. We must take our instructions and our directions from it, and our portion of meat and strength, of grace and of comfort, in due season as from the master of the household. It must dwell in us, that is, be always ready and at hand to us in everything, and have its due influence and use. We must be familiarly acquainted with it and know it for our good. It must dwell in us richly. Many have the word of Christ dwelling in them, but it dwells in them but poorly. It has no mighty force and influence upon them. The soul prospers when the word of God dwells in us richly, when we have abundance in it and are full of scriptures and of the grace of God. Matthew Henry says that many have the word of Christ dwelling in them. But it only dwells poorly. So it doesn't have that mighty force and that influence on them. And so what about you as you look at that? Does the word of Christ dwell in you richly or poorly? Does it dwell in you like a master or does it dwell in you like your servant? See, we want to be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock so that when the storms hit, he had that solid foundation and the house didn't fall. Because life happens, right? Suffering happens, sadness happens, loss will come, and we need the word of Christ to dwell in us richly during those times. And at this, and then the other side, good times come, right? Happiness comes, new life comes, and we need the word of Christ to keep us focused on God and to be thankful to God, right? Because our tendency is to look at ourselves and to not look at God, right? And our happiness, our fulfillment, we often forget that comes from God. We think that it comes from us and our accomplishments and, and our things. When in the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites are going to go into the promised land and God gives them this uh, warning. He says, when you go in there, you're going to have houses that you didn't build, fields that you didn't plant. You're going to have food. You're going to have this. You're going to have all that. Don't forget God. Why? Because when we're full of abundance, when we're full of every good thing, we tend to forget God. And so we need that word of Christ to dwell us richly during those times. In addition to that, two more reasons. We need the word of Christ to keep us from sinning. Psalm 119 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We need the word also to guide us. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So how do we get the word of Christ to dwell in us richly? They're kind of the obvious ways that you would think. 
the word is found Sunday morning. It is found in the preaching. It is found Sunday morning in the singing. It is found in small groups. It is found in the conversations that we have with each other. It is found in Bible reading and in meditation. It is found in just thinking about what you read, right? Because if we take Matthew Henry's concept of the word dwelling in you richly and the word dwelling in you poorly, if we just read the, the Bible, let's say we, we want to read it for five minutes a day and that's our goal or we're going to read one passage a day or have a devotion, and we just read it and then we just walk away, that would be the word of Christ probably dwelling in us poorly. But if we read that for five minutes and we spend ten minutes thinking about it, what did it say? What does it mean? How is it applied to my life? That's where the word now, instead of dwelling in us poorly, dwells in us richly because we've thought about it. We've, thought, we've gone through. What does it mean? And, that, and so it's a way that we can have the word of Christ dwell in us um, richly because the more you listen, the more you read, the more you think, the more the word becomes who you are. The more the word becomes a part of you and the more it dwells in you richly. Um, going on to the second part, Paul tells us that we're to teach and to admonish one another. So we not only need this word for ourselves, as we have already seen, but we need this word for others. We need this word for the people that we um, at our church and that we're with. So think about this. An attorney will memorize the law so that they can practice law so that they can defend the innocent and they can condemn the guilty, right? So the law dwells in them richly. An air traffic controller will memorize procedures and approaches and aircraft characteristics so that they can safely get the people from one place to another. So these rules and these procedures dwell in them richly. A doctor memorizes diseases and medicines and cures so that they can recognize when you are sick and what to do about it, how to treat the patient, right? So their medical knowledge dwells in them richly. We need the word of Christ to dwell in us richly so that we can help each other. Because this says that we are to teach and to admonish. And we're going to break those two pieces apart here in a minute. But together, the reason we teach and admonish each other is to help each other grow. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16 says this. It says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are to speak the truth in love to each other. This is what teaching and admonishing is. It's speaking the truth in love to each other so that we grow. And so let's kind of break it apart first. Definition of admonishing. Uh, one of the definitions, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to do teaching first. Teaching and admonishing. So definition of teaching. Um, teaching is, <laughs> um, <laughs> I always feel like I have to confess whenever I miss a place in my notes. I don't know why, it's like who I am. So I'm like, okay, we're going to go through admonishment. This is what we is. This is the definition. This is the description I looked at. And the first word is, teaching is. I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> so I'm going to stop. I'm going to regroup. Here we go. Teaching first, admonishing second. What is teaching? Kind of obvious. Everyone knows what it is. But teaching is the orderly arrangement of truth and the effective communication of it, right? 
So it's the orally arrangement of truth. Truth is here. And it's the effective way that we communicate with it. All right, so, so teaching seems obvious. And teaching seems like a good thing. We want to learn things that we don't know and things that we have an interest, right? This is one of the reasons why we come to church. We want to learn. And we want to be taught by someone who knows what they're talking about. Right? And this desire to learn is universal. What's one of the first things that you do when you can't figure something out and you want to know how to fix it or how to do it or learn something new? If you're like me, you go to the Internet, right? You look, you Google it, you go through, you try to find, is there a YouTube video? Is there anything at all? So my dishwasher broke. The first thing I do is I'm like on YouTube, how to fix you know, dishwashers. And I go through, I'm like, okay, here it is. Now we know how to do it. I can go ahead and tackle it. So Mickey's, Mickey wants to um, make a quilt. And she wants to make a small quilt. In fact, she wants to make a tiny quilt. Not a quilt that'll fit a king-size bed or a queen-size bed or a full-size bed, but a quilt that's only big enough to fit a crib. <laughs> so if you guys were here last week, you know why. Uh, <laughs> Nick knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> Mickey does too. So um, <laughs> Mick and Annie are expecting. So my first grandson... Um, in fact, he's getting a call about it right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's one of the funny things, and I'm not going to reveal what the answer is, but so Mickey and I have gone through, it's like, well, what do you call yourself as your grandparents? So we're coming up with names, and, you know, Nick had a bunch of them. Uh, I think one started with Cool Daddy J, but I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> Big Daddy J, okay. I like the cool better. So <laughs> anyway, I digress. So what happens was Mickey wants to do this little baby quilt, well, it's like it's different than a regular size quilt. She wants to learn. She wants to know. And what does she do? She goes to YouTube and tries to find a video so that how she can go through it, right? So we naturally want to learn. It's normal. It's right. So who do you normally think is the one who does the teaching in the church? We normally think that the pastors teach or the small group leaders teach or the Sunday school teachers teach. But think about the context, the context that we're in right now and the context that we had read the other passage from um, is the church members, it is the church members who are to teach and to admonish each other. So this is a call for you to teach and to admonish. So what does admonish mean, right? So one of the definitions to admonish is to advise someone concerning the dangerous consequences of something that's happening, or their actions. So in other words, admonish is when we see someone who's doing something that's wrong and that's endangering themselves, or there are others, and so we admonish them, and we um, bring this up, and we talk to them. So admonishment is different than teaching. And one commentator says, admonishing has the element of this strong encouragement. It's generally practical and moral, rather than abstract and theological. And it is one of the ways that teaching is reinforced in the lives of the hearers. And so if we learn something and we see someone's going through that, we are called to an encouraging way to bring this up and to let them know. And we're going to be looking at that in detail here in a minute. Um, but just to understand that this is what it is. And so once again, this is a way of applying what we know. And if you think of the passage, it says iron sharpens iron. This is really um, one of the concepts of that. So admonishing, when we think of that, if admonishing is correct,
correcting someone or showing them something or doing that, there's ways that that can be done well, and there's ways that that can be done poorly, right? Because um, we can come at it with different ways, different attitudes, different mindsets, different behaviors. So first of all, how can it be done poorly? How can we misapply the concept of admonishing someone, of helping them walk through truth when we see them doing something um, wrong? Um, one of the ways that Paul has already told us is that we can use wisdom that's earthly and unscriptural. We can use a philosophy that's hollow and deceptive, right? Um, and this is why he stresses that this must be done. We must teach and admonish in wisdom. And this wisdom is the wisdom that's from above. This wisdom is God's word. This wisdom is the wisdom of the spirit. So the other way it can be misused is that we can be harsh, judgmental, and with no love at all. Right? And we've seen this. And we maybe experienced it where there's the harsh, short, sharp rebuke that goes straight to the heart. Or it's the overbearing and judgmental attitude and tone and voice that rather than building up the person, tears them down. So if God calls us to help each other, and we want to avoid those things, we want to avoid the hollow and deceptive philosophy, and we want to avoid the harsh and judgmental attitude, how can this be done? And so... The answer to this is a little bit longer, and in order to do that, we have to look at the context that this verse is in, this context that this passage is in, and that the book is in. So earlier in the chapter already, so chapter 2 kind of talks about this hollow deceptive stuff, then chapter 3 begins again with the gospel, and then he goes through and he tells two things. Uh, Paul tells us what we're to put on and what we're to put off. So he begins with this. He says, if you have been raised with Christ." Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are the earth, right? So what he's saying is we want our minds and our hearts set on God. Set on the things that are above. What are the things that God thinks are important? Oftentimes they're different, right, than what we think are important. But he, what's important to him? Building up the body. Right? Building up the believers, maturing them in Christ, helping them to grow. And so Paul uses these terms next of put off and put on. And these are terms that he uses all the time. He uses them in, in several different books. But you put off kind of bad behavior, and you put on right behavior. You change one for the other one. And so he goes through in chapter 3, and he tells us what to put off. In fact, he uses the word put to death some of these and put off other ones. But he says, put to death immorality, impurity, evil passions, desires, and covetousness. He says, put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying to one another. He says, you once walked in these ways, but now put them away. So he says, get rid of that behavior. And then he says, to put on this other behavior. He says, what do we put on? Compassionate hearts kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He says to bear with one another, forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And so 
Oh, and then he goes on, he says this, he says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So if we put off this bad behavior, if we put off the anger, the, the, anger, the malice, the short temper, it's going to prevent us from being short and judgmental because we put that off. If we put on love and compassion and kindness, it will build the others up. It will cause both ourselves and the others to grow if we come with this compassion and kindness, right? And if we get the wisdom from the Word of God, it prevents us from giving the hollow and deceptive philosophy, those things that have the appearance of wisdom but have no value. If we do everything in word and deed in the name of the Lord Jesus, then we are able to teach and to admonish because we're using God's Word. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that this change comes to place. And so we speak to others, and we encourage each others, and we build them up. So how do we do this? How do we come alongside each other? How do we, how do we help people in essence? So teaching and admonishing, it's helping people grow. It's kind of uh, holding up the mirror in one sense to kind of see where they are. Um, so we bring the word to them, and we do this in love. We do this in kindness. We do this in patience. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. We can see through here, Paul is saying there's three different types of people. He says some people are unruly. They're disruptive. They're insubordinate. And these we correct. These we instruct. Some people are faint-hearted. They are afraid. And these people we encourage. Some people are weak. And these we help. So think about it this way, right? You have a bunch of kids and you have a teacher. And as part of their school, they have to put on a play. And it's going to be in front of the parents. And it's going to be a musical on top of that. So the unruly kid, what does he say? The unruly kid says, this is dumb. There's no way I'm going to do this at all. And there isn't anyone who's going to make me get up there and sing in front of everybody. Right? He's the unruly one. The faint-hearted one is the nervous child, the one who's so afraid, the one who's stage fright. They're afraid to get up in front of other people. The weak child is the person who has trouble due to some type of a limitation. Maybe they're too young to memorize lines. Maybe they're too young to um, you know, sing or whatever. But, they, but they're weak because... Not because of an attitude, they're just, they're just simply um, weak to do that. And so what we do in this situation, or what the teacher does, is she approaches each child differently. Because none of these three child children want to go up on stage. But there are completely different reasons for them not wanting to do that. So to the unruly, the teacher is firm, and they correct. And they instruct. To the one who's faint-hearted and afraid, they encourage. And they try to encourage them to do it, to give them strength, to help them with it. The weak, one, they, the weak one, they help. They help memorize the lines. Perhaps it's a different part that would fit them, or it wouldn't be as complicated. But they go through. And each one, they treat differently because they come about it from different sides. And so when we talk to people, we want to do the same thing, right? This teaching, this admonishing, as we look, where are they at? Are they being unruly? 
are they are they afraid? Are they are they weak in the area that they're a new Christian or they're a weak Christian? They just don't know, and it's just it's just overcoming. They just need that instruction. So we go through, and then it's important to realize too, at the same time, that these aren't like set in concrete, like the ruly is always unruly and the afraid is always afraid and the weak is always weak, right? Because we're all things. Sometimes we are unruly. Sometimes we're just stubborn, and we just don't want to hear it, and we need that correction. And sometimes we are afraid. We're just afraid to do it for whatever reason it is, or whatever situation we're afraid. Other times we're weak. We don't have the ability. We've never done this before. We don't have the knowledge, and we need help. And so we go through, and we see these things. When we're helping people, we realize this, that sometimes we're in this state, sometimes we're in that state, sometimes we're over here. And then he says, be patient with them all. What happens if you're not patient with the unruly person, right? They become more stubborn. They become more fixed. In their heart, they become more rebellious. And their heart begins to harden. The, um, the one who's afraid, if you're impatient with the afraid, what happens to the person who's afraid? They become more fearful. What happens to the one who's weak when you're impatient with them? They become frustrated. They're already doing everything they can, and they simply cannot do it. And then with that impatient, it makes it worse because there's a frustration. And so he says, be patient with them all. Recognize what it is. So as we teach, as we encourage, as we build up, be aware of, of what people are and where we're going to. So it's funny as you walk through this passage, right? He, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach it and admonish with all wisdom, right? And then he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and be thankful to God. And it's like, the first time I read that, I'm like, what are the songs and hymns? It doesn't seem to fit in with the flow, right? But as you think about it, it totally fits in with the flow, right? Because what his music is, this music that he mentions are psalms, they're hymns, they're spiritual songs. What do we find in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? The word of Christ. The word of Christ. It is an effective way to teach things, right? Because we get together on a Sunday morning and we sing about God. We sing about Christ. We sing about what he has done for us. We sing about what he will do for us. And I know especially at King and Grace, our worship leader, so Nick this morning and uh, uh, Mitch and the other ones, they never just pick out songs to pick out songs, ever. Every week they're they are in contact and they find out what is the passage this week? What are you preaching on this week? And they set these songs up so that they tie in together with the message and with the passage so that it encourages it, it reinforces it, it teaches us, it admonishes us. And so during the week we go through and we hum the tunes and we sing the songs and we remember it and it becomes who it is. And it's one of the ways, the most effective ways that the music can dwell in us richly. And so when we're going through difficult times, we can come back and remember some of those songs. And it helps us. And when others are going through a difficult time and we're helping them, we can remember those songs or remind them of those songs. And it is God's work. And so this music part needs to be in here because it is such an important, critical piece of who we are. You look at you look at the Psalms, how much it says, praise the Lord. You look in Revelations and what we're going to do, we're going to be praising and singing to God with everyone, the angels and, and um, all of them. Um, and so finally to close, this verse 16 is sandwiches, sandwiched by the word thankful. Verse 15 says, be thankful. 
Verse 17 says, giving thanks to God the Father. This is one of these things that God calls us to do, and we do it, and it's also results of what we do. When God's word dwells in us richly, we will be thankful. So Paul says, be thankful, right? Be thankful, do this. He says, let the word in Christ dwell in you richly, giving thanks to God the Father. It is a result of the word dwelling us richly that we will give thanks to God the Father. So when the words of Christ dwell in us, we will reach out to others. We will come alongside them. We will help them. Whether they're unruly or afraid or weak, we will help them. And we will have this music in our hearts and we will be thankful to God. The band can come up as I close in prayer. Father God, we come before you now. And you are the word. And you have given us your word. You have given us your gospel. You have given us life. And Lord, we just pray right now that you will help your word to dwell in us richly. Lord, may it dwell in us not poorly, but richly. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit will impart your word to us so that it's not something we just read and walk away, but it's something that we read and we think about it and it becomes part of who we are so that, you, so that no one could separate your word from us. We ask your Holy Spirit for this. Lord, we pray now that you will help us to teach and to admonish and to encourage and to build up each other and this body that we might do this in just conversations that we have with each other in small groups on Sunday mornings on Saturdays and throughout the week Lord we just pray that you'll be with us Lord teach us your songs put your songs in our hearts that they're always on our lips that we are humming and thinking and singing and Lord, let us forever be thankful for you. And Lord, we thank you now in your precious and your holy name. Amen.